Hi guys, welcome back to the Earthy Delights podcast where this week I'm going to be talking to one of my good friends from uni, but I don't actually want to call her a uni friend anymore. I want to call her my actor friend so that when she makes it famous and wins an Oscar or something, you know, we can say that we had an Oscar award, an Oscar winner on the podcast. So yeah, here's my actor friend, Ella McCallum, um, who will be talking. Here she is. Look at that beautiful London accent. Um, she's a, a, a staunch Tory um uh <laughs> no, i'm joking <laughs> but but um but yeah so we're going to talk today about uh the kind of relationship that she had with her well has with her dad um and his um addiction to alcohol and drugs uh and kind of just the consequences of that rather than getting into the details of the actual addiction itself so but before we get into any of that juicy business um let's start off with what's the crack how are we doing ella Hello, Seb. Um, I'm not bad, thank you. Um, bit of a weird time to be asking that question because I'm not really doing much with my life. Um, but I'm I'm doing okay considering I'm getting all the things I wanted to watch on Netflix out the way. Um, nice. Well, it's some interesting stuff as well. To be fair, at the moment, they've. Re- I feel like yeah. they've. I feel like they kind of almost knew about the coronavirus because. They're releasing loads of good shit yeah. all at once, you know. And that uh, you're currently watching the uh, the Tiger King, aren't you? I am. I'm yeah, very confused. I, it's <laughs> genuinely incredible. Like it doesn't it doesn't make sense. Like if if someone told me that they were going to do a film about it or whatever or like a fictional piece, I would have been like, even that's too far fetched. Do you know what I mean? Uh, yeah. I'm not the most imaginative types, but the fact that all of it is real is just quite something else but yeah yeah it's bizarre and I've I've spent loads of time I've I've somehow managed to like video chat with all of the friends that I should have been keeping in contact with before got ones in Australia Mm. and Argentina and we're actually all like making the effort to talk every few days which is a good thing I think yeah 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 I've started using I hate FaceTime as a as a rule Mm -hmm. but I've started even I've started using it in that um house party app or whatever it's called like yeah (laughs) just need to see faces like just to remind <laughs> me that there's actually other humans in this world but yeah um hopefully it passes soon but let's not waste any more time because i feel like this could be a juicy interview uh interview podcast conversation however you want to call it so let's go straight into the main segment Okie dokie. So first off, do you want to just kind of um, explain uh, the what you know what your dad's addiction and kind of like how you came about it? Because to be honest, I I'm not sure if you ever told us when we were at uni together, um, yeah. unless it slipped my mind. But I feel like it, that's something that wouldn't have slipped my mind. So do you kind of just want to fill people in who aren't really aware of the situation. Yeah. Um, so yeah, like you said, I lived with you for two years and may have mentioned it once or twice it's not something that I um it's not a conversation starter for me um Mm. but so my dad is 10 and a half years sober um from September yeah 10 and a half years sober now um so from sort of his late teens 20s um up until me being the age of 13 um he was an addict um, and since then, he has been in recovery. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, that's that's the the general uh, gist. 
was he a functioning um, addict just because I, yes. I don't know I've, I've never met him but just the way you talk about him and stuff I kind of always seen that he was like a kind of put together guy who had his like shit together so I assumed that he was a functioning addict at the very least no yeah absolutely um there's very few memories that I have um as a child of him being under the influence or anything like that we were very sheltered from it in a way mm. and so he you know had this really great job and worked his way up in an industry he had no experience in he met and married my mum he had three children um so it's it's not your typical story that I think we're told a lot about addiction um especially yeah. with with alcohol and drugs that you know this is a slippery slope and your life is ruined which obviously is very very likely to happen um mm. but I think it's an interesting conversation to have of those people that suffer from addictions all kind it doesn't need to be drink or drug related but all kinds of addictions that and they still manage to maintain a, 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 what people would call a general standard of life a normal standard of life mm. how, how did you like come about um finding about this information did he come to and tell you or did you start to put two and two together or so um I was I think 11 or 12 um and my dad had been staying at a friend's for a couple of days um and we sort of got sat down um, me and my sister who were at the home at the time and they said that he has an uh, a problem with alcohol and he will be going to meetings for that um and at the time it was sort of weird because it was quite unexpected it was never something I'd ever considered happening so it didn't really sink in what that meant for him mm. in terms of his mental well-being or where he was at because you know when you're 12 years old your dad is superhero you don't yeah, yeah. ever assume that anything's wrong um and so then when I was about we, we knew this was happening and then when I was 13 um I came home one day after school and no one was in and um, there was a piece of paper on the kitchen table and me just being my usual nosy self started to read it and um, it was a it was one of his speeches from his meetings and it went into a bit more detail and it mentioned drug use which I was sort of blindsided by um, mm. so then ensued a very dramatic reaction from Ella naturally yeah <laughs> <laughs> and um yeah that kind of led to the conversation which is obviously not the not the way that was intended but I do understand my parents uh reasoning in uh just talking about the alcohol when we're at that age because we're not at an mm. age to comprehend anything more than that but that definitely was a sort of little explosion in our household yeah. sort of the conversation coming before it we were necessarily ready for it and that our parents were ready to have that conversation yeah I can only imagine because I remember when I was young I think I'm similar to most guys or most like people it's just that when I was young I was like oh I'm never gonna smoke a cigarette <laughs> I'm never gonna do this I'm not, do you know I mean that's how you think when you're young and then uh, you realize that these things are uh, slowly but surely seep their way in especially when you're at uni but to think that like do you know I mean to I imagine that you kind of had that same perspective when you were younger at least and then to kind of think that maybe your dad like you said who's a super, who was a superhero like we all see our parents that way 
actually was kind of um, compromised by these things, that especially as kids. We, I feel like as kids, we almost demonize them more than what they actually should be in a sense. Absolutely. You know? I am. Um, this is quite funny. I haven't thought about this in ages, but my dad, so both my parents used to smoke and my mum quit as soon as she got pregnant with my older sister. But my dad mm. used to uh, carried on smoking. And I, I must have been about nine, eight eight or nine and smoking used to upset me so so much um no laughing um that I used to cry in my bedroom when my dad used to go outside and smoke and it basically led me and my sister would get so upset I would convince myself that you know he was going to die if he had another cigarette and um he quit smoking he I assume it was because of our reaction (laughs) maybe was something different but I remember that being such a a thing to me of going this is something that could take my dad away yeah and so the yeah. idea then of of how learning that your parents kind of have these vices or are aren't as infallible as you assumed it's mm. a massive massive shock and I think it came at a time most people learn that their parents are human beings a bit later on um and yeah. I think learning that so young has quite a big impact 100 I, I was literally i was just going to bring that point up i was just you know i i mean i think that re- recently in my, you know, my own personal situation that i've kind of re- i mean i always knew that my parents were flawed human beings just because they're human beings but mm-hmm. it kind of um hit me harder over this divorce and everything else and you start to see the worst sides of people and unfortunately you know and not that you are your your worst self it was just we all have the ability to but i was what 21 20 when that happened and so obviously even though it hit me hard um i was a lot more kind of prepared to deal with that situation and also a divorce is you know it's different it's not i don't want to say embarrassing but i i can't imagine that at the age of 13 you would have been able to confide in many you know friends and stuff because number one at 13 there's the emotional intelligence there is zero um and also because to admit to your friends that like because i'm sure your friends would have come over to your house and had sleepovers and all the rest of it you know to admit to your friends that like your dad is is an addict which as we just said at a young age kind of seems worse than we maybe think it is now uh, how was that for you? Like, who did you confide in? What did you, what was your reaction to it all? Um, so the day, the uh, the day that I came home and found the letter, I actually, um, I walked, out, I stormed out the house um, before anyone had got home and I got on a bus and I went, I was walking around this park that was near the house of my best friend. And I remember calling her and mm. I just couldn't say it. Yeah, I remember I was so hysterical, but I just I said I was going to say something. And then it was this kind of, yeah, I don't know if you would call it shame, but it just was this thing of I didn't want to accept that that's what was happening. And so I just decided to not say anything. And I didn't tell her I kind of just made an excuse that I'd had an argument with my parents and it was fine and I was going to go home now and it took me a long long time I don't think I actually told any of my best best friends mm. um until I was about 16 um right. and I think it maybe it kind of then starts a chain of events of I I can be like you probably know, I'm I'm not afraid to talk about emotions or feelings. I love a good cry, as is mentioned in I think like the first episode <laughs> of this podcast. Yeah, <laughs> um, but I, I and I think I'm very open in that sense. But when it's something that I personally am struggling with, I do have a tendency to 
hope to keep it in and to to not want to share it and yeah. I think that was probably the first example of me going actually I don't want people to know I don't want people to have ownership over this and to to use a word because when you hear words like addiction it's I think people make assumptions and that's why I kind of thought that this was an interesting thing to talk about because it's not something I will open up up on often because I I worry about the way people interpret words like addict and recovery mm. and so yeah that's kind of why I thought it, this would be interesting to talk to you here because I'm actually able to justify the wrong word but explain yeah yeah I mean, it has so many different faces. There's, you know, obviously there's addiction to drugs and then obviously and, and alcohol and obviously then within those drugs, there's varying degrees, you know, and then you've got gambling addiction, which I think some people maybe even, some people probably don't even really recognize as an addiction. They just mm -hmm. think, oh no, you can just stop. And it's like, well, no, like, and you know, it's hard, it may be even harder in some aspects because you're not under the influence, so to speak. So you can't see the direct kind of, um, consequences of doing those actions it's kind of a, a silent addiction there's yeah. so many you know the, the sex addiction there's so many different addictions where people just think take them for like granted and like, tarnish everyone under the same brush uh and i do think it's important especially you know to, for someone of your background of your you know you gone to Leeds uni and all the rest of it to show that like you can have a dad or you know pet mom or whatever a parent who was addicted um and yet still at least on the face of it, you know, have what you would see, what you would see as a kind of a fully functioning family. I mean, for example, you know, your, your dad was an addict. My parents w weren't, but my parents are divorced. Your parents are still together. So on the face of it, you would look at your parents and go, oh, well, they're Ella's parents have got it hunky dory just like they're yeah. you know great family and then actually you delve into it and the more i do this podcast and the more i speak to people the more i realize that it doesn't matter how perfect their life may look they can go to the moldies every two weeks it's still everyone has their own shit it just that just is the way you know and i think it is definitely important to kind of talk about this i think when i just want to question you know you said you, you kind of said i didn't tell my best best friends until i was like 16 so that's like mm -hmm. three years does that imply that you kind of told people who were maybe not so close to you and therefore your parents i asked because i found it a lot easier to for example i found it a lot easier to tell um people about my parents failings and shortcomings and what they were doing in the divorce and all this mm -hmm. to people who didn't necessarily know my parents but yet louisa who knows them very intimately i didn't really want to open up to louisa about it because i didn't want to tarnish their image in louisa's eyes you know i didn't want to yeah. tell louisa all the bad things that my mom and dad are saying or doing because then louisa's gonna have to on next sunday come around my house <laughs> and act like it's all fine whereas i'd much rather tell someone who i know is probably never going to see my parents and it was e a lot easier for me to open up i'm not sure if that was the same with you or um i think so in the first few years i didn't talk to anyone at all um right that was but I completely agree in terms of like, I find it much easier to talk to strangers or yeah, people I don't know as well. Um, people love to use a rehearsal room um, for some free therapy, which I am reluctant to do. But I, I do think to talk about things without the emotional aspect of it, I think I'm very good at It's because I can tell people a sort of factual version of events but when it comes to people I know very well, it's, yeah, it's that idea of going, these these are friends, a lot of my closest friends I've known since I was, um, like, primary school age, 
three or four. So they know yeah. my dad almost, you know, sort of like cousins. And um, so, yeah, it's hard to kind of admit and go, well, yeah, they're not perfect. But I also think it's that it's this weird taboo and stigma around addiction because the the addiction is the ill is a kind of facilitator for or um fixer solution to the underlying mental health issues which i think mm. is a really important thing to do and some people people deal with their illnesses and their mental ill health in all these different ways and i think addiction is one of those solutions obviously it doesn't work in the long run but in the beginning yeah. it's it's a it's a self medication um yeah. and so it's kind of it's yeah it's almost harder when someone knows your family really well it it feels yeah it does feel a bit you use the word embarrassing and I get what you mean it's probably not the right word because I I don't think it's something I'm embarrassed of but it's no, admit, yeah. it's kind of having to admit that that everything isn't as great as they seem but I also want to yeah. take the time to say that I I'm so, so lucky in so many ways and so privileged and so grateful to have the parents that I have um, that I, and there's a lot of things that aren't perfect about my life, but who doesn't have that, you know? Yeah. And, I, and I think it's not a surefire way to go, oh, your life isn't as great as everyone seen because everyone has things. It's just that this mm. is my thing. And yeah. I can't relate to a lot of other people in terms of divorce. I'm very lucky that my parents are still together and I'm able to live at home and to not worry about things like that. But this is sort of now sort of my my niche of, of family trauma, mm. which I'm sure everyone has their <laughs> own niche, but yeah, yeah, yeah. addiction is mine. Yeah, we all have, the, I would call it um, depression top trumps. It's like, who, <laughs> <laughs> who has the worst scenario, do you know? And then we're just like, well, I actually have this scenario. It's like, oh, yeah, fair enough. She wins, she wins. <laughs> um, <laughs> but um, I wanted to ask, do you think um, that it, because obviously we, we kind of met together, just for people who don't know, at Halls in first year, we were in the, put together in the same flat and then we went to live together in second year. Um, I kind of always even though like you're funny and like you, you play you're, you're happy-go-lucky type person I always kind of um within the house both house first year and second year always thought of you as actually the most emotionally intelligent um and I probably didn't oh. put two and two together no <laughs> genuinely but I wonder if it's because you kind of had to come to you have to face those realities when you were 13 years old and so you you know you've realized um, you know, you talk about mental health and all the rest of it. You had to realize these things a lot earlier than maybe we, the rest of us do. You know, I think of it before I kind of fell into depression and the rest of it, I thought that depression, I was kind of a bit Neanderthal about it. And I used to think <laughs> that depression was, you were just a bit sad, put a smile on it. People have it worse. Do you know what I mean? Go out. It's all good. And then you get into it and you're into the throes of depression. And you're like, oh, for fuck's sake, this is not what I thought it was. <laughs> this is really shit. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Maybe people were right. But I had, you know, I had that realization when I was like 20 or whatever it was. Um, and you know, since then I then started a podcast, but you kind of came to that realization when you were 13. So I wonder, did that kind of make you a lot more emotionally mature compared to your friends and everything else who maybe have that kind of hunky dory lifestyle where everything, at least on paper anyway, seems perfect. Um, in terms of emotional maturity, I wouldn't say that I, I learned that very early on, but I think I, I learned coping mechanisms and they weren't always usually the best ones especially being a teenager um 
I think like most people I've had my fair share of um sort of mental ill health but I think yeah it kind of taught me and I'm really grateful for my dad I've inherited his sense of humor completely um I make probably far too many inappropriate jokes um Mm. I'm not afraid to laugh at myself or laugh at the awfulness of life but I yeah I think having that experience quite early on is it's your your bubble of kind of fantasy and infallibility it bursts and you have Mm. to sort of go right well things aren't always going to be great and this is really shit and it feels awful um but I think that it kind of it I think my a lot of my personality could has derived from that you said you call me happy go lucky and Mm. and I I sometimes find myself as someone that's you know painfully insecure and second guesses everything and is completely in my own head but I think I've spent so much time in my teenage years sort of struggling with those feelings that I don't I know how awful it feels and I don't want anyone else to feel that way if that makes sense yeah so I think I think having that I'm much more in tune with other people's emotions and reading rooms I think is a big thing that we we people probably learn too late um and so I think yeah it's that thing I think I might have just stolen a Robin Williams quote um (laughs) but it's fine We'll play it off. Ella, twenty twenty. <laughs> Ellie McCallum, twenty twenty. But yeah, so I, I think there's a there's a thing about not wanting to bring the the mood down. But I think you also, I I remember you being quite like that in a different way. But you were very much un- unless we were having one of our little heart to hearts in the house yeah. alone. We <laughs> yeah. you were very much trying to keep things up and keep things happy and fun. Um, yeah. So I, I I do, I wouldn't say that you were, I would say you were immature in many, many senses. Yeah, fair play. (laughs) Take it on the chin. I wouldn't necessarily say that you were, you know, completely lacking emotional maturity. I just think that especially men are taught that they're not allowed to, to have those feelings. And it's, I always knew, oh, I always felt comfortable even no I wouldn't say I felt comfortable but I always knew that there was a safe space for me with you know parents or friends or whoever to go and talk to and cry to I cried to you I've cried to you many times um but I knew that and I do think that maybe that's something that men um are taught aren't taught yeah it's a I think it's a some something that we've had to unlearn yeah uh I you know I used to I'm not sure if I've said on the podcast before, but I went from the age of 13 to 20, 13 to 21, which is when my parents got divorced, where I didn't like cry a single tear. I remember talking oh to you about it at uni and you and Mirren would be like, oh my God, what? We, we sometimes, <laughs> when we don't cry for like two months, because everything's been good, we just watch a sad film to make ourselves cry. And I was, couldn't get my head over, I still really can't get my head it's over cathartic. that. But, but, but why well, I did realize that, actually you know crying isn't the worst thing in the world and it's sometimes actually necessary uh and needed but i it was kind of weird because at one when i was when i would say that to people oh, i haven't cried in seven years whilst that was completely true and i knew that it was weird and it should, probably shouldn't be the case because mm-hmm. it wasn't like my life was perfect in those seven years nor was it terrible you know but you know you should cry over normal things as well it doesn't have to be life or death situations but um there was also a part of me 
that I had to unlearn, which was I was almost proud of it as like this man who hadn't cried in seven years. Do you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And then when I finally did cry, I, I mean, I, I think this, the, it was about my the mum dad's divorce but then it was about everything else as well like it just all came out do you know what i mean yeah. um and but yeah i i i you're right i did kind of feel like um it was necessary to keep spirits high at all times and you know what i mean just act stupid if that's what I had to, if that's what i had to do to get a laugh or whatever it was or dance around to james blunt your beautiful <laughs> in costume and then that's what i had to do um, i still got the videos but, yeah i know hopefully i don't become too famous from this podcast i feel like they will get released the moment i do but it's but what i want to say is though is that um you know for example within the house i would say that my best friend was alex mm-hmm. yet when it came to um you know, times where I had to have a bit of hot heart or whatever, you know, for example, when I wanted, we were, I was going to live with um, the guys and then I kind of switched last minute. I was like, oh, this is a bad decision. And then I was like, no, fuck, I need to live with Ella and the rest of the gang. I didn't go to Alexon to tell that decision. I didn't go to Mirren or anyone else. Do you know what I mean, I went straight into your bed and I was like, Ella. And like, we had <laughs> oh a conversation. <laughs> yeah. And, and then we had like a conversation, but it's just because I recognized that like you were the right person to have that conversation with. And it wasn't, I didn't know about your dad at that point, but there was just something inherently, I didn't almost maternal. I don't know what it was, but that I could just tell that like with you, even though we, you might not be my bestest friend in uni or whatever it may be, with you, I could have those conversations. I was just wondering if that if that did come from from kind of your your previous experiences i think some in some part it must have done uh yeah. and i want was that the same with your friends like because i talked to jim and obviously jim's mum passed away when he was young and he said that like he's kind of amongst his friends like almost become like the the grief connoisseur do you know what i mean <laughs> like when when someone dies whatever everyone goes to jim like, oh jim how do we deal with this oh, and it's God. like and yeah i was just wondering like it's not obviously with addiction but like once your friends started to know, did you kind of become the agony aunt for your friendship group? Um, think. I think when, so I, I can kind of see myself more in that role now in terms of, I like to make it very clear, or I hope I make it clear to my friends that I'm always someone that can be spoken to about these things um, without judgment or anything. But I think when I, probably for context sake, when I started to tell people, um, I would, it would usually come out when I was very, 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 very drunk. Um, as most, you know, a gathering on a Saturday night. Um, and I think it, that was almost my way of dealing with it kind of ironically was I deal with my dad's addiction by getting really drunk Um, Mm. but I also think that that's a lot that's a coping mechanism a lot of teenagers deal with um and so those the the starts of those conversations or the roots of those conversations didn't really start properly until I'd gone to uni I think because it would be I would get drunk and I would cry and I would tell someone about it um and then kind of wake up and pretend it had never happened Um, Mm. I think that that shame kind of did carry through a bit. Um, And so I spent a good few years just not feeling very happy and not knowing how to talk about it. Um, And so I think, yeah, there's kind of, it's, it's weird. I, again, using your, your um, family top trumps thing. some of my closest friends have gone through really really awful things and so I wouldn't say there's necessarily one position of being like right you're the you're the god on this topic but um 
but it's funny how it kind of translates into my family like yeah with friends and everything I'm very open and I'm very willing to have kind of difficult conversations now but with when I asked my dad for permission to talk about this on the podcast I I kind of remember going really stony face and I had to prepare myself and I I'm very reluctant to talk about emotionally to my family mm. um, which I think is probably something that we'll have to um, develop over time eventually but it still feels quite raw to me um, mm. but so my my dad uh, <laughs> he ran upstairs when I asked and he he said I'm just going to write you some context and I thought oh god please don't I said is this going to make me cry and he was like <laughs> probably <laughs> and I won't read out the whole thing but it's sort of I think it's a really brilliant um, way of kind of talking to me but also knowing that I lack the uh the strength to not just cry um Mm. but he said this really great thing which I want to read if that's okay yeah um but so he's uh, in the, the letter he's gone through the context of his brother passed away overnight when he was very very young and he always kind of had a problem with shyness and social awkwardness and and drinking and drugs became the the medication for that but so it kind of goes on this story and it's quite sad and then it just says at the end um reading back this sounds full of pain but my life has also been full of joy and laughs and not insignificant personal achievement I'm blessed in having a lovely family who I love beyond all things and who are all smart funny and capable so not much to moan about really dad Mm, and I just British yeah so British but I just thought that was such a brilliant um sort of capture of him of you know things can and and sort of both of our personal outlooks of things can be really shit but sorry am I allowed to swear I just oh you can do whatever you want all the profanities oh okay yeah Um, (laughs) (laughs) but it's just such a brilliant way of you know of trying to stay positive because yeah that that radiates through people and you can feel that and Mm. pass that on without sounding really hippy dippy no no 100% I think that I've gone recently perspective no that's kind of what he's saying is like all in all not too shabby really. yeah. uh, when when you see like and I that's like with me with my own thing um and you know someone yesterday said to me that they were crying because they were a bit upset like with the um coronavirus and lockdown it's all getting a bit too much and I said look I'm not telling you that this is the antidote for all sadness but my thing is perspective and it's just always thinking that like look okay this is shit or whatever it may be but you know I said to my friend in the case of the lockdown I was like look you're in lockdown but you're in a lovely place where you can and you're in England where so you're allowed to go out for your daily walks and you have a dog and blah blah it's like think about people in Spain and Italy you know myself but you know, others who are a lot worse off who can't go out for a lock for a walk and have lost their jobs and, and mm-hmm. I just think if you kind of keep that perspective and then keep things in like you know you're with your friends friends and blah blah you're healthy in the coronavirus case anyway that it kind of it helped me anyway to kind of get out of things and when so when i was like depressed and whatever, i was like okay look my parents have split up but they're not none of them have died i've still got them do you know yeah. what i mean like i know some of my friends their parents have committed suicide or died early you know from unforeseen kind of circumstances and then, and then you kind of feel like a dickhead basically complaining about a divorce um, when you're like my mate over here hasn't got a mum that's like my own personal thing and then yeah. I speak to those people and they go mate that's that like as Jim's one of them like I said I, I said to Jim I was like oh I feel bad complaining about my divorce to you when like your mum passed away when you were so young and he was like bro like that's 
that's fine. Like it's not because I have a bad thing means that your thing is less, mm-hmm. you know, important or whatever it is. That's just your reality. I'm not going to say your truth because I hate that, but your, <laughs> your, your reality. And so you're living it. And so you, you find it hard, but that I find perspective, a huge helper. And it seems that your dad obviously ha- has done that as well with your dad. Like I um just from what you would tell us at uni and stuff, I kind of always got this, feeling that um you were kind of best friends with your dad that was like the the feeling that you would give off when you'd speak about him like that was how your relationship was it was kind of like a friendly relationship rather than like a a father-daughter respect-based relationship <laughs> hate I, that. um no I, I agree I think it's uh, he's very he's me I was gonna say on drugs but that's probably not appropriate um <laughs> he's I am so my dad's daughter um but I think yeah we're not the kind of buddy buddy where we talk about boys and very personal things but he's very much um a joker and a big kid absolutely Mm. um that's not to say he didn't tell us off when we were growing up like he can be he's like a six foot three Essex guy he can be quite scary but he yeah he's always been very funny and playful and I think that's almost what what um, I found the hardest. I think when I was 16 and I was going through some things personally, I went to see a counsellor. And mm-hmm. I remember she said this thing, which I kind of mentioned earlier, but she she said that your dad's always been your knight in shining armour kind of thing, which is probably the mm. case for a lot of kids. And to realise that that armor isn't so true or to to kind of have to see the 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 faults in people um yeah yeah I think because we had that sort of friendship um that was what was so hard but I don't think that that's necessarily changed at all I think it's kind of it's made me have so much more respect for him and sort of I think that's where a lot of my um persona comes from in terms of I want Mm. I I don't ever want people to feel you know upset or lonely or unwelcome uh and I think I probably got that from him was when when you kind of found out and what was the main feeling would you say it was deception would you say that like was that the one like when you found out um and then like the stages like did you go through a kind of like, was there almost a punishment stage, like as in where you were kind of punishing your dad, like be it by I don't know ignoring him or shouting at him or whatever it was, and then a kind of like what what was it with the relationship with your dad? As it obviously you're in a good place now, but I assume that when it kind of happened and then the years after that, it wasn't so easy um, just to kind um, of get over it. Was was there were there stages or was it like kind of dealt with and nipped in the bud? I think. I I wouldn't actually say that there was a negative impact that happened within the family itself. I think Mm. that it it was more the aftershock that we all kind of felt individually, I think was probably a bit of an issue. Um, Was I remember finding out and I stormed out and when I came home that night, we kind of had a conversation and then from then it was never really discussed. It wasn't really brought up. And I think that's um, my dad would sometimes try to initiate conversation and I'd very swiftly cut him off, um, mm. which I do have some regret about. But I also think for me as a person to to deal with things, I sort of need to 
sometimes I just need to shut the conversation down. Um, yeah. And that's obviously something I have to work on. But I think my my mum, me and my mum have never really discussed it. Um, right. I remember we had a conversation once where I ha- I suddenly got this memory. It must. It's probably only in the last five years or something, but I have this memory and I don't know how old I am, but I remember standing at the top of the staircase with my sister and it's dark and my mum's at the door and she's opened the door to my dad um who now looking back on it was was um like under the influence and I remember being told to go back to bed and then the next morning my mum had said that he'd stayed at a friend's and it was so bizarre because I still have this such clear memory um but I don't uh, yeah, I I don't know the context of it, but then um, my mum said to me once that when when it was all happening and um, quickly before he he got sober, he um, she basically said to him, "If you you stop now, or I take the kids and I go." Yeah. Um, and so it it kind of equally made me have a lot of respect for both of them. My mum knowing that she's strong enough to do that, and my dad um, loving us so much that that's a catalyst to yeah to sort yourself out yeah. um but I think I, yeah I we we don't really discuss it that often um and would you change that if you could like now would you talk not saying every day at the dinner yeah. table but as in <laughs> as and when it props up or if you see something kind of in a film that maybe like um would you know be the catalyst for a conversation or whatever it may be would you be more open to that now especially now that you're of an age where you can kind of really talk about it properly and adultly rather than a 13 year old would you change that or are you kind of happy with the status quo and leave it where it is and let's just move on I think I'm happy in the knowledge that I know I can ask my dad anything Mm. um I, I know I could ask him the most personal questions and he would give me a proper answer um yeah I think it said it speaks more about the impact it's had on me rather than how he's dealt with it because I think in given the circumstances they've been amazing it's more that I really struggle to even talk about it without being very emotionless just talking about the the factual stuff yeah yeah um but yeah I I don't know. I think in an ideal world, we'd all be able to talk about it and, you know, go to family therapy and it would be great. But I think, yeah, I think it has given me a kind of, um, coldness is completely the wrong word, but, uh, an emotional off switch sometimes Mm. that I think I probably use in other situations now as a result. Mm. Yeah. And well, like you say, though, you know, sometimes I think that, you know, that it's uh, that's necessary. We often get pushed Mm -hmm. this idea that like a problem has to be solved in that instance and that, you know, um, and, you know, that everything has to be out in the open and this, that and the other. And and I think, yes, there's a time for that. But I also think there's a time to kind of seek solace and to just go on your own and to be able to think about things, you know, yes, Mm -hmm. just purely yesterday I'm, my dad is he's very sicilian and he can hold a grudge for, uh, better than anyone i know um but he you know he was if he, if he argued with with me my mom or whoever it may be he he would just go silent on them 
rather than like scream and shout and blah, 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 he just goes silent. And that may potentially last three, four days. It's obviously then terrible because then the whole house is just in this awful kind of under this cloud of just horribleness, you know? Um, but, and that seeped through to me and it was something that I inherited, which I realized wasn't a good thing to inherit. Right. But having said that, I've definitely tried to shorten the time periods, but you know, yesterday, for example, Louise and I had an argument and it just didn't feel right to say, Oh yeah, it's fine. Don't worry about it. Kiss and make up after five minutes. Cause I was still pissed off. Yeah. So like, I'm not going to lie. So I just like took the night. It was whatever that we spoke about in the, in the morning and then it's fine. It's forgotten about. But if I, if we did that, you know, that the night of, it would have been fake. It would have been false. Cause I would have still been fuming at her. Mm-hmm. And we, well, we would, I'd have just had to pretend that, Oh, it's all cool because that's what you're supposed to do. Never sleep on an argument and all that bullshit, you know, but sometimes actually sleeping on it is good. And, and it just, you know, depend. everyone's different. Right. And so if you needed to have a bit of an emotional off switch or maybe just kind of contemplate things yourself or whatever it may be, I don't think that's necessarily a bad thing, but I think we kind of been taught to think that, that is a bad thing. You know, I think as long as it's controlled, you know, I don't want to say that doing what my dad did for, you know, three, four days is <laughs> that's the best way of dealing with it. But maybe it is at night or if it's just a, an evening where you go, you know what, I just want to spend time and watch stupid movies and cry by myself. And I just don't want to talk to anyone. And that's absolutely fine. I think that's, that's normal. And like you said, you have to kind of carry on with things as well. I don't think, I think there's a fine balance between sweeping it under the rug and bring it out in your day to day, you know, like you you have to kind of address it, but also you have to move on with your life. You can't keep on talking about every day. I think that's as well something that's so interesting in terms of like in, in acting and what I do is I'm completely the same as you. I find it, I go very internal and I don't like to discuss things and go into things and over talk on which is you know, some people think that that's really bad. and But I also just think that that is an inherent part of my personality. And there are good ways that you can do it. And there are bad ways you can do it. And the mm. bad ways are when people, it then turns into, you know, um, having different coping mechanisms like addiction, like um, disordered eating, like self-harm. And but then there are the good ways, which I've slowly started to learn are things that I need to cope with things. Like I love just dancing it sounds so like I just love dancing around my bedroom being really silly and I think acting is definitely one of those outlets um I had to say to you before we started that I just need to not do a, an accent because I just like to go on silly little tangents and talk rubbish yeah. and I love to go on really long walks by myself and listen to podcasts and not stifle my laughter and I mm. I think there are ways that people can can um, take themselves away from situations to cope that aren't necessarily hermiting away and it's really bad for your mental health. I think that knowing what your kind of language of of grieving or healing is, is so important. Yeah, 100%. And, and, and communicating that with others, you know, like just being like, because like you said, people have it differently. Some people love to get out in the open and they want, you know, Louise as much of the let's resolve it now and like now, like let's just case of makeup and like just get over it it's kind of similar to my mum yeah. and like I'm like my dad I'm like that doesn't work for me because I can <laughs> do it but I'm still gonna be pissed off at you so and then actually having falsified this whole thing it's just gonna make me even more pissed off at myself so now we're just in a worse off situation but you know I a lot of the time like you said I will I'll go to a park or um you know a bit dramatic but I'll play some like just 
music that I love or mm-hmm. I'll write a poem might be shit might be great who knows but <laughs> I'll just sit there just because I find getting things out on paper sometimes is so much better you know and I always I, I've done this so many times where I've gone I'm going to write this person a letter and send it to them and then I've written the letter and I've gone right let me just leave it on my computer or wherever it is for a couple of days and then even in a couple of days I still want to send it I'll send it yeah, that's 100%, great. I like that. 100% of the time, I've never sent it. I've never sent it. <laughs> and it's not because I'm fearful or anything like that, but it's because after the two, three days of getting it out on paper, I then go, uh, you know what, I'm over it, or I'm dealing with it now better, or it's not so kind of pent up as it was. Do you know what I mean? And I haven't told them, I haven't hurt their feelings. It's just on a piece of paper that I can throw away or an email that I can, you know, uh, discard and and that's that it's done but that's my way of dealing with it but as long as like you communicate that with that person yeah just kind of know you know yeah and I think being... that's what my family know about me inherently mm-hmm. that I I and my friends also sort of uh, catched on but um caught on but I think yeah I I don't I'm not one for grand displays of emotion and crying and hugging um I'm not a very tactile person I never have been um mm. and they know that about me and so it's something I'm never pushed into situations where I feel uncomfortable but I have sometimes felt in like a rehearsal room which can often be an absolute game of top trumps trauma um, with people wanting to sort of validate almost almost why they're allowed to talk on subjects and it's something I really struggle with and it kind of I had a phase last year where uh, from the, where I thought I just want to take a break from theatre I don't know if this is the the space for me and I've since learned that it is it just depends on the people in that room but I kind of for me I I don't think that I need to take part chunks out of myself and put that into a performance to make it good like I did yeah. a sh- I did a show um a couple of years ago that was all about eating disorders it was made through workshopping with people that had had eating disorders um that were still suffering with them and so it was it was very very personal and it was a really really tough show but it was brilliant but it was it was just that thing of me going every day there was a scene where I had to um stand at the front of the stage and pretend there was a mirror and I had to burst into tears and it is so emotionally taxing that that I that I kind of had to distance myself from it because I thought who hasn't been a teenage teenager and looked in the mirror and hated what they see I think the majority have and so for me to put myself in that situation and put it all out on the line I it's so I think it'd be so detrimental for my mental health that I needed to separate myself and I don't think that like negates from a performance or just you know not to if if people do that and it works for them and great but I now know it's kind of given me a, a, a sort of strength in my own beliefs and yeah to just go this is not how I do it and I'm not going to I'm not going to have someone tell me that I need to put myself in a like a dangerous situation to to do something well yeah I always found that method acting a bit strong like I'm obviously not an actor but I was always like Jesus I mean Mm. do you know what I mean but then you hear you hit like I was actually just recently listening to uh, Daniel Radcliffe on Desert Island Mm -hmm. and he was talking about how some of the actors on there and obviously they were all like when he was a child they were all amazing actors you know the people that were on there the names escape me now but the the famous actresses and actors that were on there and um, he was saying that some of them had to like kind of go away for like a couple of hours before a shoot to really get into the role or whatever or 
afford even like being their role off camera because they couldn't kind of switch it on and off. And then he said that some of the the guy who did um, Hagrid, mm-hmm. for example, I forget the actor's name now, but he could like just literally he could be laughing and joking with you, and then the next minute they go right camera action, and then he he'd be Hagrid. Mm-hmm. But before like thirty seconds before that, he was just the normal guy, he was just a normal human being. And yet you look at Harry Potter, I don't think you know Hagrid's up there with any of the performances that you see. Uh, that kind of method acting always kind of scared me because I always thought it must take such a toll on you. And then I always, I always thought maybe you can speak to this more. But what happens afterwards? So after yeah, the exactly. show's done, or you know that like you've kind of been this person or character for however many months, or if, if it's a film, potentially years. And then what? You just like I don't. I'd never understood it really personally. But I mean, no, I, hey, each I, to their own. I yeah, each to their own. And if it works for you, it works for you. But I have there's this brilliant interview with Tony Collette, who's one of my favorite actresses, and she says, uh, someone someone asked her a question about how did you how did you manage to cope emotionally with you know doing doing those scenes in Hereditary, and she's like, it's mm. just acting. Mm. There's a little Australian accent for you there, if anyone wants to cast me. Love um, <laughs> but she, it's it's that idea that, that it's performing. And, and I think Andrew Scott in um, the How to Fail podcast, he, he mm. kind of says this thing about, I, I, I can't be around people that, that put it on this pedestal because whilst I do think the arts and performance is so, so important for, for our mental health performers and watchers, I, I just also kind of have this, thing niggling in my ear of going you're not doing brain surgery yeah you know my mother Denzel went, Washington said something so similar really yeah, yeah. it's just going yeah, like yeah. I, I'm not set you know you could metaphorically be saving lives but I always like to to put myself to remind myself that it's just pretending you're you're playing you're you're pretending yeah. to be someone else and if people love that then brilliant and if you can be paid to do that then that's amazing but it yeah. kind of it, it makes it easier for me to deal with the the reality of trying to be an actor of going I'm just trying to pretend to do something. Yeah, yeah, I, exactly. That that is the job, isn't it? Just to pretend to be someone that you're not. Yeah. Like the, ultimately, I mean, that is literally acting. That is what it is. And Denzel Washington said the same thing. He said some, someone because you know how it is. Like people try to get really deep with it, no matter what it is. Do you know what I mean, you could like be washing your dishes and people will try to get deep with it and someone <laughs> some some like um journalist was talking to me about it and he said look like like that woman said Tony Collette she said he said look it's acting he said the hard the really difficult jobs are like the people who go on and they're fighting wars and they're doing this and they're doing mm-hmm. that he said I am being paid millions of dollars to pretend to be someone yeah <laughs> that is all I'm doing and I'm doing a good job but like that because I like you know I mean I'm getting the awards or whatever but it's no further than that so like don't get it twisted and I think like but again it's perspective right I think he like he has his shit together and he's got things in perspective where he's realized that what he's doing and this isn't just acting by the way I think this like goes for mm-hmm. all jobs we all like, I, I say it to all where I'm, I'm doing social media management right at now I don't really particularly like my job, but it's what I've got to do because I'm in Spain. I don't have any contacts since the first job I got. But I talk to people who are in my sector who are like friends that I used to work with who've moved on to other other like um, jobs. And they're still doing, they're still in the same sector, but they're different companies. And I go, oh, how are you going? You know, question, how's work, blah, blah, blah. And they always come up with the same thing. Oh, so good. I'm learning loads, blah, blah. And I know it's bullshit because I know that like once you've done six months in that sector, you kind of learn almost all there is to know. And then after that, it's very repetitive. 
And sometimes I just question them and I go, why are you lying to me? Like, I know like what it is. Like, you don't have to make out it's something that it's not like, it's all right to say that your job's not like this high and mighty thing. Mm-hmm. But I think some people have like a real difficulty with kind of admitting to themselves that maybe what they're doing isn't this world altering pursuit, you know? And there's nothing wrong with that kind of humility in a job. Like it is what it is. Like, let's not try to make it out to be something that it isn't. Um, to, to go back to your dad quickly, um, you know, you said that with that memory with your mum and like at the, the yeah. you standing at the top of the stairs and whatever else. Does that mean that your mum was kind of in on the act? What I mean by that is just that like she knew the whole time or the majority of the time was and was helping your dad, let's say, cover up before he kind of told you everything or or did she kind of find out on a similar timeline to you? And if she was kind of in in the cahoots with your dad let's say and knew about it and you were just trying to shield her kids from it did that ever become a problem when you found out like did you kind of feel like your mum had like I don't know betrayed your trust or anything along those lines um I don't know the ins and outs in terms of what was known um I think my mum's never been a big drinker even before she met my dad um so she knew my dad drank a lot but I I don't really know how much she knew until the sort of um, catalyst for him going into recovery. But I do I do think as a teenager, I had a lot of resentment, which was probably un, undeserved, more towards her than to my dad, weirdly. Um, mm-hmm. I think, yeah, I kind of felt more betrayed. And I think there was one time I I really shouted at her and I kind of said, well, we've we've never spoken about it you know, like my, my dad, that's my dad. And, um, I can't remember what she came came back with, but it, it sort of has taken me a long, long time to realize that the man that I call my dad, because it's my dad that had the problem and it's my dad that's gone through this and it's my life that's been affected. It's also her husband. Um, and she's had to deal with her husband going through this and the effect that it's having on her kids. Um, and it's taken me a long time to 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 realize that because I think that yeah there was a lot of pent up feelings and anger um, mm. about the whole situation and it yeah it was never really a thing of deception I think it was just that all those feelings you have when you're going through puberty anyway your hormones are all over the place and you're kind of angry at the world in general so then to then find that out it wasn't necessarily like I'd felt I'd been lied to it was just this thing of going why is this my like my life Mm. um which you can kind of say with all things but it yeah I don't think I don't think I'm lucky to say that it never got to the point where our relationships have been that deeply impacted by it it's just yeah it was just that resentment of going why do I have to deal with this yeah yeah why me yeah why do I have to have this is the thing I worry about like why do I I think there was a lot of things especially when me and my sister got to the age where we started drinking um and you know my dad would make a joke about um saving me a seat at recovery (laughs) which I can now laugh about but at the time it's just yeah it's this frustration of going why do I have to think about being hung over in front of my dad or why can't I have yeah. friends around for pre-drinks and and I, it's nothing he's ever stopped us from doing but I think it's I think what what I think is important to say is especially when it's your parents is to just allow yourself to have those feelings and go yeah it's, it's annoying 
it it is there's times and it's not something I'd cry about but I do just go I just want to have a pint with my dad I think my I went for a drink with one of my close friends from school a couple of weeks ago and he said uh so my they, they both do music they both um are musicians and my dad comments on his Facebook statuses, <laughs> but uh, my friend David said, oh, I'd love to go for a pint with your dad. And then he stopped himself and went, oh, well, like, you know what I mean? Just a chat. Yeah. yeah. And yeah. yeah, I guess there is a bit of like, oh, well, I'd love to go. My dad tells me stories about him on holiday um, or when he used to travel for work when he was younger, pissed. And I just go, we would have had such fun. Mm. So I think, yeah, that is, it's mourning and grieving isn't the right word, but there is a little bit of that kind of going, ah, oh, sucks yeah. it does suck yeah yeah but how was you, you touched on it briefly how because for people who don't know who don't know ella ella can get smashed more than most people i've known um <laughs> thank you and she can do it she can do it on very cheap vodka so her night doesn't seem to be that expensive um <laughs> but how was how was that for you because you know you know how it is you go to university uh some people maybe didn't drink that much before university and they kind of let loose at university or maybe others did but either way especially when you're at Leeds Uni which I think is probably one of the worst for partying and like drugs even though they're let's call them social drugs in the sense of you're not doing them at home alone but you're doing them when you're going on a night out I still wonder how that kind of how did you see that when with all of the stuff that you knew and kind of your personal experiences because to me like just from an outsider's point of view mm. it seemed as if it never affected you like I wouldn't have been able to tell that from how we would go out on a night out together how you would drink let's um, not implicate me no how <laughs> you know if, if other people in the group did or did not do paraphernalia you know I never kind of it never I never saw you kind of take like a a, a stance where I would have assumed maybe wrongly, but I would have kind of assumed that someone who had seen their dad go through rehab and so on and so forth would maybe have taken, I don't know, kind of been more opposed to those things. And you were always kind of like a good time, Charlie, like you were always up for a night out and whatever it was. Yeah. It was, is that a fair assumption of me or, or, yeah, no, I, or, what, I, or were you dealing with things privately that maybe we didn't see when you went back like into your room or whatever it was? No, not at all. I, I think when I was, I, I remember always having this thing until I was about, until I went to uni, really, I was always quite um, against, I had this almost hierarchy of drugs, which the drugs that were, you could do and they were allowed and they were fun because they were for parties and the drugs that you absolutely could not do. And it, it kind of makes no sense now. And as you know, mm. they swift, those morals swiftly went out the window, but um, no, it's, it's never been something that I've had to go, you know, I, let me rephrase that. It's, it's not something I think addiction and mental illness, there's a lot of argument to say it's hereditary and it's not something that I disagree with. Um, I know it's something that like people inherit cancers. Um, Mm. There is a higher chance of me suffering from these things, but I also think I could, you know, I have a, as long as I have a stable sense of you know my mental well-being um yeah I I've never felt at risk yeah I've just I've I've kind of I'm not going to stop my life I'm not going to suddenly shut down and go these things are uh awful um I think and it and that's the, the 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 most important thing it's it's the the addiction is a coping mechanism to deal with other things 
it's yeah. not that you try a drug one time and become really addicted. That might happen, but the, the, the main cause of this is other is suffering in other aspects of your life mentally. Um, and so as long as I think people are aware and well-equipped to deal with those feelings if they ever come, I would like to think that I'm putting myself in good stead to not be, um, to not go into that. Um, yeah, and I like a party. Yeah. I'm sorry. Yeah, no, no need to apologize. <laughs> I mean, the question your, your your music taste is questionable, but I mean, you know, it's fine. <laughs> How dare you? <laughs> but um, but no, but what I but also, yeah, I mean, it's obviously it's the right. You come into the right kind of conclusion and assumption that you know. I watched an interview recently where I was talking to the guy who was an expert in like kind of all kind of. He was a chemist and he was just a, an expert on like all drugs and like the kind of molecule kind of background to each single drug and he said this one thing he said drugs never killed anyone he says humans kill kill ourselves we just like we use the drugs overtly that mm-hmm. make us killers it's not like the drug is coming out all at you and like trying to get you and you know what i mean it's like we are the ones who choose to use it and you can use whatever it is once or twice like you said and you'll probably have a good time on it as we're the ones who then choose to abuse those things and take it that step further which you then if you're kind of unlucky maybe you go into addiction like your dad and if you're really unlucky you take it too far and you know potentially die but i i kind of wondered not just about yourself but also like you never came across as judgy at leeds uni it's funny because there's like two types of people aren't there at leeds uni there's the people who kind of just accept that we're at leeds uni is what it is you do it uh you have a good time and then that's that and then there's people who come maybe still um a bit wet behind the ears from sick form and they're like oh no i'm never gonna do drugs and then you see them in second year and they're wearing like do you know what I mean? The oh. tie trousers and haven't washed the hair in three days. And you're like, oh, right. Okay. It's, it's good to see how that one worked out for you. But you, I, we kind of dealt with drugs very flippantly at uni. I always thought like, and it's fine. Like they were party drugs and it is what it is, but we never really like, no one really talks about it seriously and was like, mate, look, I think you should probably calm down. Cause like you're doing this like three, four times a night, uh, sorry, a week. Um, and like you, I would have, this is just me, but I think if I had like your experiences, I maybe would have been a bit more judgy and maybe not like judgy, but maybe protective is the word, especially with friends and being like, Hey, look, like I, I know where this road leads to. I would just calm it down a little bit. Do you know what I mean? Whereas you kind of never seem to like have that um, outlook. Is that um, like, where do you think that comes from? I think just, I feel like you, like you were like really just, I don't know. I feel like way more understanding than I would have been if I had your same experiences. I think I think to be able to judge people, you kind of have to be perfect yourself. And and I'm mm. not in this situation to do that. I think what I was always reluctant, I think I was just more reluctant to get into those conversations. What I find what really uh, upsets me is the, the when people talk about addiction kind of flippantly and yeah. this thing of oh I'm so I'm addicted and I'm an alcoholic that nothing angers me more than that phrase which obviously is coming completely from personal experience and I can't mm. I, I don't blame people for using language like that because I probably do it for other topics that I just don't even yeah. think about um so I yeah I think it's just it's to get into that kind of conversation would be to again it, open yourself up yeah it involves a lot of opening up and I think I'm not a a kind of punching is punching bag the right word you know I I don't want to have to expose myself every time I want to have a conversation about things and and mm. I think that's why I kind of veer away from I think 
I, I'm very liberal in terms of drugs and all that kind of stuff. But what I could never, never, never stand was the the people that talked about it more than they actually did them. Yeah. That's what I, I had no time tits. for. I just, yeah. I didn't care. I had no interest. Um, I think like everyone likes to have a good night out and be silly and do things and whatever. And that's fun. But the fun stopped for me as soon as it would be people talking about how constant I think that was a thing massive at uni massive at Leeds was just to you know drop drop in what they'd done over the weekend and I just thought I don't care because to you it's it's a joke to say that you're an alcoholic because you've you know gone to an afters and had a pint at 12 o'clock like that's a joke to you and if if you find that funny you find that funny but I just I I don't yeah yeah, no, I agree. I, we like we were talking about the trauma top trumps at Leeds Union. There was definitely a thing of, well, two things: DJ top trumps and <laughs> uh, and drug to, and drug top trumps. Who could who could name the most obscure DJ and who could say what quantities of drugs they did and see if they could outdo each other? And it just got to the point where they're usually like, oh, I really this conversation is just nauseating. Oh. Can we please just stop? Also, because I just knew I'd outlast all of them on a night out. That's what I. <laughs> I just I just felt sorry for them. <laughs> Yeah, you're just a hardcore bastard. So you're like, ah, oh, I petty these fools. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, listen, I think like the conversation's been like really, really insightful. Um, I want to just thank you for your openness because even though maybe we've touched on it slightly at university, at times we definitely kind of never spoken about it. Um, with this honesty and openness before so maybe it's taken coronavirus for us to do that <laughs> but um i really want to thank you on that before we get before i let you go i just want to start um want to ask you how you get your shit together but before you give me your answer i just want to play what is in my mind the best podcast jingle going right now <laughs> I don't know what it is about those clicks, but they just put me in a good mood. Um, <laughs> did you make that yourself? Uh, no, we, uh, I wish I did. I wish I was that talented. I mean, we stole it off YouTube. I stole it's free, but yeah. Um, so Ella, tell us how you as an actress help to keep your emotions in check and keep on top of your shit. Keep on top of my shit. I love to do a list. I'm so boring, but I love to do like a checklist where I can tick things off. I find that borderline sexual, Sebastian. Um, <laughs> what, but like chores or like things you have to do or like everything. a list of like, okay. So it could be like, it could be doing, if I had emails to send, if I need to, you know, call someone or meet someone, just little things. But I think it's so satisfying to me to break things down and to just look at what I have to do and I put I always put more on there than I probably have time to do and then I just transfer it to the next day um and I think that is in terms of me actually getting the shit done is my crucial one but also what I love to do which I can sadly no longer do um is I love walking and not going on walks because not not somewhere but to ha go somewhere where you've got a destination I love I used to do this if I was auditioning uh in like central London 
say I was going from South Bank to Marylebone or somewhere where I could easily get the tube. But if I've got an hour or so spare, I'll just walk. Yeah, I've, I'm so on that. I got yeah. onto that recently, just before coronavirus started to get into that, and then typical coronavirus came out. I was like, "Right, nice one." Yeah. So, but I, I like one of my friends. He's like a massive walker. He's like, "Bro, just, just." We were talking about losing weight and whatever else, and he's like, "One easy thing is just walk. Like that, you'll lose weight before you even know it. But also, like, just for your headspace, and you can listen to podcasts or audio books or call friends or yeah. whatever it may be." I am so with you on that. I, like I, and I think you know what I think as well. People who live in big cities we're so like in a rush all the time yeah. like obviously you're in london i'm in madrid and it's like and so i think we kind of see journey time as like it can be optimized right like, let's mm-hmm. not waste time walking from a to b we can just get the tube or we can get a bus and it's like 10 minutes instead of an hour potentially right but then it's like okay that's fair enough if you've got to be somewhere at a specific time and you're kind of you you don't have the luxury of walking there because otherwise you'll be late but i'm like well if you kind of can get there leisurely why not walk? And I've like done this thing where when I'm walking, I really try to take in my surroundings. Yes, like, exactly. L- look at this sounds, this is going to sound a bit woo woo, but like looking at like little kids who are just like running up to their parents and laughing or just doing dumb little kid shit. And it just makes you like laugh and smile. And like when you're on the Met, like in this Madrid, it's called the Metro, where like you're on it. You, everyone's just staring at their phone. Even if there's no signal, you just stare at your phone to avoid eye contact. Mm-hmm. And like with like these drones. And then when you come out onto like the pavement and you walk, and then luckily in Madrid, it's sunny more times than not. You can like see these like just little human interactions, right? Yeah. And it, I don't know, it, just, it makes me, it just puts me in a good mood. It I'm really such does, a honestly. Dork. I love to like smile at random people and see if they smile back. Usually they don't, mm. but sometimes they do. But <laughs> the best walk in the whole of London um, is from South uh, Embankment Station over Embankment uh-huh. Bridge and across uh-huh. down down towards the National Theatre along the South Bank at like sunset. I my me and my best friend Ella do this, and we um, we started doing this when we were about sixteen. But we always go there, and it's just I have these moments where I look around and I go, "This is the best city in the world," and I just have that really sappy moment of being like, "I'm just so happy to be here." Mm, I think 100% yeah makes that 100% it makes that checklist seem easy because it goes I'm so grateful to be doing what I want to be doing and you know in this little bubble so why not actually enjoy it so just smile at people on the tube man 100% and also when you're in a big city like I find I've been walking down streets and I've lived here now three years total I've been walking down streets that I never knew of yeah because like obviously I just get the metro everywhere so just underground and then like before you know you pop up and you're in a different destination and then like you go down these streets and you're like, oh that's a nice restaurant I might go there one time oh that's a fairly good like, that looks like a nice shop I might take Louisa do you know what I mean like and you're like you you kind of discover a city within the city like a new part of the city which you would have never ever have done because obviously we all just kind of frequent the same little like pubs or whatever it may be mm-hmm. and we never go to different spots especially when it's your hometown do you know what i mean because you're like oh no this is my this is my spot like i'm not gonna leave here and so i found like i've literally just seen a new madrid and so once this coronavirus comes because we're not even allowed our daily walk in spain so wow. once this coronavirus comes I will be walking You'll nonstop. You'll be hitting those streets. <laughs> I will be hitting the streets, smiling at everyone. <laughs> well, uh, Ella, I just want to thank you so much um, for coming on. I think it's really kind of brave and hopefully helpful for people who may be either suffering with addiction or know anyone who is suffering with addiction um, to kind of listen to this conversation. I think it's been really, really helpful. Uh, is there anything 
like I don't know have you got any plugs that maybe you could do I feel like maybe any all of your plugs? shit got cancelled right with, all with of, coronavirus all of my shit has been cancelled um but if anyone post corona is looking for a currently pink-haired actress um <laughs> hit me up who is who could, who could happily dye hair at the drop of a dime but i will i, I will shave my head if you want me to <laughs> i'm waiting to do it and no one will pay me for it uh, i had to do it because louisa <laughs> fucked up my hair and it's not a good look i'm telling you so maybe just hold up on that one but yeah um guys thank you so much if you've been listening um we really appreciate the support as always the typical like subscribe give us a rating and spread it by word of mouth which is always the best marketing scheme uh thank you so much and we will see you guys in two weeks time bye